It was September, 1975, and things had changed a lot for Bonnie and Herf since the early days back in Houston. They just held a wildly successful class in Waldport, Oregon, recruiting another 20 crew members for God's spaceship. And for once, it felt like people were actually starting to take them seriously. Maybe too seriously. That same night, the most watched news anchor in America, Walter Cronkite, introduced Bonnie and Herf to primetime. And they learned the hard way that not all publicity is good publicity. A score of persons from a small Oregon town have disappeared. It's a mystery whether they've been taken on a so-called trip to eternity, or simply been taken. They'd been praying for years for some real press, but not like this. Police were launching investigations into the so-called disappearances of their new recruits, and journalists were on them like bloodhounds. But worst of all, the media was calling them a UFO cult. The label came with a level of stigma and scrutiny that the two just weren't ready to deal with. And besides, it was unfair. Cult was a pejorative, a slur. There weren't a bunch of drugged-out, knife-wielding crazies. Bonnie and Herf much preferred the recently minted, politically correct nomenclature, new religious movement. They were just a group of like-minded, everyday folks on a unique spiritual path. The two could have reached out to the press and set the record straight, sure. But with the cultural climate the way it was, things could go very, very wrong. They decided it might be best to lay low for a while, so they split up the group, at the time almost 200 people, and sent them out on the road in every direction, scattering the flock from coast to coast and everywhere between. Even Bonnie and Herf themselves were separated for nine months, corresponding through P.O. boxes whenever they could. When they finally reunited in Wyoming in June 1976, not everyone showed up, and paranoia got the better of them. The two declared that the, quote, recruitment phase was complete, and turned their attention to what Bonnie called clarifying the butter. In other words, culling the doubters. Anyone caught smoking weed or having sex was out, and, as you might expect, their numbers started dwindling pretty fast. Bonnie and Herf rechristened themselves after notes on the musical scale, tea and dough, and spent the next three years moving back and forth between campsites, summering in Colorado and waiting out the winters in Texas. But living outdoors, constantly on the move, scrounging for scraps and panhandling for pennies, whittled their numbers down to 40, and if they didn't make a change, and fast, the rest of their acolytes would turn apostates soon enough. And then Jonestown happened. Jim Jones, the leader of an offshoot church known as the People's Temple Agricultural Project, had immigrated with his followers to a tiny settlement in Guyana five years earlier. Very long story short, things went south, and in November of 1978, they ended up gunning down five people, including a U.S. congressman. Jones announced that all hope was lost, and convinced, coerced, or forced his followers to down a mixture of cyanide and off-brand Kool-Aid. He declared, quote, we are not committing suicide. It's a revolutionary act. 909 people died, including Jones himself. It was the largest single incident of American civilian deaths in history, eclipsed only by 9-11. And Jones recorded the entire agonizing thing on tape. It was an unimaginable tragedy, and it only further darkened the stigma around the word cult. Bonnie and Herf were just as horrified as everyone else, but they knew what this meant. The media scrutiny and suspicions of law enforcement were only going to get worse. Much worse. The group's morale was sinking fast, and the two did their best to assuage their fears, 
I mean, surely no one would mistake Heaven's Gate for a deranged suicide cult. Things were looking grim, but like the two always said, God saves. And apparently, so did the parents of their newest recruit, who was more than happy to sign over his trust fund to the cause, about a third of a million dollars. So in 1979, they decided to invest in a more stable living situation and rented a complex of houses in suburban Dallas. Despite some concerns about the light pollution throwing off the spaceship's coordinates, they had more terrestrial things to worry about. Privacy and security were the priority, especially with all those police and private detectives snooping around on behalf of the members' families. But their new home afforded a certain level of protection. In Dallas, groups of the godly still got some benefit of the doubt. A handful of the members used fake names and phony resumes to get jobs, redirecting their reference calls back to Bonnie and Herf, who, of course, gave them glowing reviews. Impropriety aside, they made for great employees. Quiet, punctual, well-groomed, and obedient. Before long, the flock was raking in around 300 grand a year. They shared everything communally including clothes, and yeah, even underwear. Each and every item was handpicked by Herf and Bonnie, the self-proclaimed masters of mall shopping, who curated a rotating collection of hot couture from their favorite boutiques, Burlington Coat Factory and TJ Maxx. Every day was planned down to the second, how much money they could carry, who they could talk to, what they ate, even the proper circumference of a pancake. Tea and dough were mostly benevolent as far as totalitarian regimes go, but the experimental diets and erratic sleep schedules were a little rough, especially the short-lived and kinda tone-deaf regimen of nothing but dinner rolls and, well, Kool-Aid. Over the next few years, members came and went. The message continued to evolve, and Bonnie Nettles was getting sick. Despite her years of experience as a nurse, she couldn't bring herself to accept it, the symptoms were there, she ticked every box, but she ignored it, downplayed it, and flat out lied about it to her family, her flock, to Herf, and to herself for as long as she could. But by 1983, she knew the running was finally over. The doctors had to surgically remove one of her eyes in a last-ditch effort to stem the spread of aggressive, untreated cancer. They begged her to undergo treatment, but she wrote them all off as ignorant quacks. She had a destiny, she told them. Of course she was going to die one day, but not here, not like this. The beast was coming for her, and she would face him down, unflinching and unafraid, side by side and hand in hand with her soulmate. The beast would take them, bit by piece by shred, but she and Herf would be there together, in life, in death, and all that came after, and no fiend, devil, or disease could ever tear them apart. By spring of 1985, the cancer had spread throughout her entire body. She was so frail and weak, Herf had to carry her into Parkland Hospital, where he checked her in with a fake name and kept watch by her bedside as the love of his life, and so far beyond, faded away before his eyes. On June 19th, Herf returned home to his followers and told them that Bonnie's work on this level was now complete. She'd abandoned her earthly vehicle but she would never abandon them. She was their guardian angel now, their guide on this quest to join her on another level, forever, together, where they belonged. In keeping with her dying wishes, Herf scattered her ashes across the serene waters of White Rock Lake, where Texas finally called Bonnie Nettles home to stay. 
Later that night, he pulled one of his students aside, trying and failing to choke back his tears. Am I crazy? He asked her. Should I just tell everyone to go home? She told him no. Of course not. He had to press on, like Bonnie would have, uh, did want, still wanted, and he knew she was right. He knew he had to go all in. A darkness fell on Marshall Herf Applewhite that day, and it would never leave him, but he was far from alone beneath that shadow. The fear that had gripped the nation through the worst of the 60s had never truly lifted, and for a lot of Americans it was only growing darker. The lingering distrust and paranoia was a virus, and with every new season came a new mutation. And in the late 70s, it was pandemic. Folks everywhere started locking their doors for the first time. They were warning their children not to talk to strangers and dreading whatever horrors lurked out there in the night. And those horrors were legion. The MPAA had lost its stranglehold on cinema, and for some, movies became too realistic and challenging to bear. Footage from Vietnam brought the war home and right to our living rooms. It was no longer a distant, glorified abstraction. It was raw, visceral, and terrifyingly real. All at once, the skeletons in our cultural closet came tumbling out like an avalanche into the daylight, turning our screens into mirrors, and America recoiled in horror at what it saw staring back. The erosion of traditional gender roles and sexual norms were decried as the mainstreaming of perversion. The women's liberation movement was bringing women into the workforce in droves, and was decried just the same. The Atlantic wrote, The Manson girls signified innocence corrupted, or worse, a fundamental misunderstanding of what girls are capable of. And for a lot of Americans at that time, there wasn't much difference between a woman holding a briefcase and one holding a knife. It was also around that time that the FBI was finally making a real effort to crack down on child sexual abuse, something the vast majority of Americans never knew existed, or pretended not to, or considered so vile that to even acknowledge it was to speak its evil into existence. Whatever it was, the rash of prosecutions and publicity made it feel like a new and sudden epidemic. All of that bled together and stirred in with the specter of death biding its time in some ruski missile silo. And it was only a matter of time before that cultural kerosene once again soaked the kindling beneath the witch's stake. Now it wasn't just the communist spies infiltrating American society. It was satanic sex cults, deranged butchers dressed as birthday clowns, bag-headed maniacs, or worse, attractive white businessmen turned serial killer. All of the monsters staining our white picket fences in blood. Everywhere you looked, folks were trading God for incense and crystals. Kids were listening to bands like Twisted Sister and rolling dice with too many sides. And women were abandoning their rightful place in the kitchen for meaningful careers and leaving their children in the care of total strangers. The blood-red writing was on the wall. The devil had come to suburbia and his cultists were among us masquerading as our neighbors, our colleagues, even our own daughters. And if the richest of Hollywood royalty weren't safe, no one was. This socio-spiritual cancer had to be exercised before it claimed us all. Someone had to speak up, to speak the hard truths that the politicians, the pinkos, and the mainstream media didn't want you to hear. The witches had to burn. And a celebrity psychologist named Corey Hammond stepped up and cashed in to give those fears a face. 
Hammond earned his fame, fortune, and as far as we're concerned, special place in hell by capitalizing on the zeitgeist of paranoia. He was basically the witchfinder general of Reagan country. His theories, expounded on in countless paid lectures all over the country, were sprawling and convoluted to the point of incoherence. But for right now, we'll just say it involved a global cabal of satanic pedophiles who've secretly run the world for generations, working in concert with the CIA, Nazis, imaginary Jewish doctors, Fidel Castro, Albert Einstein, and pretty much everyone Hammond didn't agree with politically or just personally didn't like. And of course, anyone who had the chutzpah to point out just how dumb the whole thing was. He claimed the satanic lefty pedophile syndicate had infiltrated every level of government, academia, Hollywood, and even your own local PTA in a diabolical plot to turn America's children into brainwashed, devil-worshipping robot sex slaves. If Hammond's spiel sounds strikingly similar to the memes your creepy alt-right cousin has been spamming all over Facebook lately, well, this is where that all originated. Hammond was patient zero for the autoimmune thought disease of modern conspiracism, and it's even more batshit than you'd think. Hammond and his acolytes sparked a reactionary mass hysteria that would plague America for two decades and beyond. It was a primary catalyst for the rise of the modern religious right, it kickstarted a neo-Puritan crusade for artistic censorship, convinced her mom that Halloween candy is full of needles, and ostensibly made it hip to be a square. The hysteria would come to be known as the Satanic Panic, and Texas played a central role in all of it. The stories are incredible and horrifying, but it just wouldn't be right for us to strip it all down to a five-minute summary, so we're going to give it a full episode of its own. But for right now, this is what you need to know. It had been 30 years since Joe McCarthy drank himself to death, but in the 1980s, hunting for witches was back in a big way. And this time it went far beyond Hollywood and Capitol Hill. This time, and we emphasize this time, its arbitrary wrath fell on the booming daycare industry, the enemy du jour for the newly minted moral majority. Allegations of heinous, sometimes supernatural crimes went from whispered gossip to national news overnight. This so-called satanic ritual abuse was a pearl-clutching fever dream of violence, torture, mutilation, rape, and murder. Police stations and PTA meetings were flooded with reports of everything from puppy dog sacrifice to grave-robbing toddlers. Studies were conducted all over the world, all of them corroborating the same obvious conclusion. It was total horseshit, but it came too late, and the banal, embarrassing truth just wasn't all that palatable to a self-righteous public with a newfound kink for salacious fantasies and pointless outrage. Besides, the alarmists were making money hand over fist, the church collection plates were overflowing, and uptight killjoys everywhere, from Copeville, Texas to the east wing of the White House, were emboldened and empowered to ruin, censor, and destroy anything and everything that dared to step beyond the red, white, and beige sensibilities of the Gipper and Gore's real America. The sensational media coverage turned the whole thing into a self-perpetuating cycle of mass hysteria. Therapists and prosecutors blatantly manipulated and coerced kids and adults alike to implicate themselves in crimes that never happened and admit to things that weren't even physically possible. Parents, police, and politicians who bought into it were rewarded with acclaim, fame, power, and cash. But let's save all that for now. That'll be a great episode. So stoked. Anyway. It's important to know just how widespread and culturally accepted this whole thing was. 
and that parents and children alike were irreparably traumatized by it. Lives were destroyed, and innocent people went to jail. Some of them are still there. And it's also important to know that one of the first and most impactful cases of the satanic panic was the Fuster case of 1985, which was launched and prosecuted by then-state attorney of Dade County, Florida, Janet Reno. Reno was coming up for re-election just as the panic was starting to heat up, and she seized on it to gin up publicity and votes. She presented herself as a, quote, crusader against child abuse, and took up any high-profile case she could find, even if it meant treading on some spurious grounds. In her first and most famous conviction of the panic, a daycare owner named Frank Fuster received six consecutive life sentences, 165 years in prison, minimum, based solely on coerced testimonies and questionable circumstantial evidence. His wife, Ileana, was sentenced to three years and then deported to Honduras. The crime likely never happened, and 34 years later, Frank Fuster is still in jail. Reno was one of the first and most effective proponents of the Panic Era's signature manipulation tactics, and she sent a lot of people to prison. Many were later exonerated or acquitted on appeal, but some of them weren't so lucky. At the time, nobody doubted the convictions. After all, the public at large was practically complicit in the whole thing, sweeping aside her dubious methods, conflicts of interest, and supernatural nonsense for the sake of emotional justice. Janet Reno won re-election in a landslide, catapulting her to national prominence and positioning her perfectly as a candidate for high-level political appointment. But all that success came at a big price, and she wasn't the one who'd come to bear the cost. Victor Hotev left Bulgaria for Los Angeles at the turn of the 20th century to make a new life for himself. He was a washing machine salesman turned self-taught candy maker, and a messianic Jew turned Seventh-day Adventist. He wasn't a preacher exactly, but he led Bible study groups in his spare time, and he was drawing a decent turnout from his fellow churchgoers. But not everyone was a fan. Complaints about Hotef's unorthodox interpretations of the Book of Revelation were piling up at the offices of SDA leadership, and in 1929, they demanded, politely, that he discontinue his study sessions forthwith and post-haste. But Hotef bucked the order, instead opting to self-publish 5,000 copies of a book he called The Shepherd's Rod, a collection of sermons expounding on his new vision for the Adventist faith, an apocalyptic warning of a coming siege that would end in salvation by fire. He called it prophecy. The church called it heresy. Victor Hotef was formally disfellowshipped and shunned by all mainline Adventists, but his study group stuck by their prophet. In 1935, he and 37 of his followers packed up and moved out to a 189-acre property just outside of Waco, Texas. It was only a two-mile walk into town, but it was just far enough to avoid the corrupting influence of urban life. Hotef christened the land Mount Carmel after the biblical mountain in Israel, where Elijah is said to have challenged the cultists of Baal to a contest of faith. They would each make a sacrifice to their respective gods, and the winner would be decided by whichever offering spontaneously caught fire and burned. The followers of Baal sacrificed a bull, eviscerating it alive on their altar, but Elijah chose to sacrifice his labor instead, repairing an old, desecrated altar nearby. As the story goes, the newly fixed altar burst into flames, and Elijah watched as all his hard work immolated to ash. But in the end, that was the point. The supremacy of his god had been laid bare for all to see smoldering before them in glorious ruin. The shepherd's rod came to Texas at the height of the Great Depression, and while the rest of America was suffocating in dust and famine, 
Mount Carmel thrived. So much so, they were able to double the size of the property and install water, electric, and sewage systems, even a phone line. They built their own printing press and a multi-level office building to house it. The press made it possible to mass-produce Hotef's tracks, earning him fame, fans, and detractors far and wide. They even printed their own currency. It was part commune, part city-state, part Gilded Age company town. Except everyone actually wanted to be there, and nobody starved. Hotef formally changed the name of his sect to the Davidians in 1942, claiming it was their destiny to restore the biblical kingdom of David. It might also have something to do with his bid for conscientious objector status, just in case Uncle Sam ever came calling. In less than two decades, the Davidians made Mount Carmel into a real home, and they waited patiently for the enemies of God to finally raise their work to ruin. The sooner his wrath came down, the sooner they could all be kneeling in peace before the throne. But Victor Hotef wouldn't live long enough to watch his creation burn. He died suddenly in 1955, blindsiding his followers, and not just because he was in such good health. They literally thought he was immortal. But Hotef's wife, Florence, was ready and willing to rise to the occasion and become the new steward of Victor's Armageddon. An explosion of suburban sprawl saw the Waco city limits creeping ever closer towards their gates, just like Victor predicted they would. So in 1957, Florence sold the land and everything they built together for God to burn, and she turned a hell of a profit, enough to buy 941 acres about 12 miles outside of town. The Davidians soon broke ground on a new Mount Carmel, on a hilltop reaching up toward heaven from a sea of rolling meadows. As their new home was finally coming together, Florence had a premonition. One so vivid, so intense, it couldn't have been anything short of God-sent revelation. The second coming was upon them. The end of days was nigh. On Easter Sunday, 1959, the first seal would be broken. And thanks to their printing press, word spread fast and far. Upwards of 900 Adventists from all over the country quit their jobs, sold everything they had, and moved to an obscure college town in Central Texas to bear witness as their savior ushered death unto the world. But the end never came, at least not in the way any of them had hoped. Hundreds of people lost everything on a bad bet, and they scattered out across the country to begin the near hopeless task of rebuilding their entire lives from the tatters. In the wake of what came to be called the Great Disappointment, only 50 Davidians stuck around the compound to pick up the pieces of their shattered faith and when the collection plates made their next rounds through the pews, they came back with little more than pennies and pocket lint. The church was broke, beyond broke. Mount Carmel's buildings were crumbling from neglect and disrepair, and the back taxes were stacking up by the thousands. Florence saw the writing on the wall, a wall that sooner or later, the state was gonna tear down and strip for scrap and copper. So in 1962, Florence and her executive council disbanded the Davidian organization, sold 90% of the land, and each of them walked away with $5,000 cash in hand. She left the remaining 77 acres, including the compound, to her personal lawyer, who immediately posted an eviction notice on the gates. He couldn't sell the property until the remaining Davidians vacated the land, but they ignored the eviction, dragging him to court in 1966. And Benjamin Roden, a Davidian from Odessa by way of Kilgore, was determined to keep him there until he broke. And it worked. After seven years in litigation hell, Florence's lawyer finally cried uncle and sold the land to Ben Roden for less than half the asking price. Ben returned to the compound and turned over the deed to the Davidian church for a symbolic fee of one dollar. Mount Carmel rightfully belonged to them all, 
and Benjamin Roden, it seemed, rightfully belonged in the presidency. He claimed God came to him in the night, lifted him into the air by his pajama pants, and told him that the new name of Jesus Christ was The Branch, or something like that. Maybe now would be as good a time as any for another disclaimer. This story is a difficult one to tell. It's contentious, disputed, sensitive, and deeply political, and it's taken us months to sift through the dozens of conflicting accounts out there, not to mention the countless hot takes in the media. Even after all that, we feel like we're barely scratching the surface here, and if you're really interested in the story, we sincerely encourage you to look into it for yourself. And if we get anything wrong, just blame literally every media outlet from 1935 to present day. But we'll get into that more in our next disclaimer. Jesus Christ. Just as God commanded, Ben Roden rechristened the sect the Branch Davidians, and the flock remained unified behind him until his death in 1978. And that's when things got really weird. Ben's wife, Lois, claimed to have been appointed as successor by her late husband on his deathbed. There weren't any witnesses to corroborate it, but the executive council of the church voted to back her claim to the presidency anyway. Lois brought a fresh, feminist, and radical perspective, relatively speaking, to the ever-evolving Branch Davidian theology. She declared the Holy Spirit a feminine entity, and she preached that women, just like men, were made in God's image and should therefore be treated as co-equal servants in his church. Some embraced her message with open arms, but others weren't all that cool with their new lady leader putting ideas in their wives' heads about silly things like equality or empowerment. A reactionary faction was forming, and Lois's own son, George, soon took the helm. He was in his 40s, bearded, overweight, and deeply unstable. He wasn't especially well-liked on the compound, where folks had taken to calling him Poor George, and just generally regarded him with a mix of annoyance, scorn, and pity. It was no secret that he resented Lois for usurping what he believed to be his birthright, the Branch Davidian presidency, and he wasn't going to let his destiny go without a fight. George was a hulking mass of insecurity, entitlement, and rage, so pretty much exactly the kind of guy you'd expect would lead a sexist rebellion against his own mother. That said, we want to take a moment to do what the media neglected or refused to do in their reporting, and note that George suffered from Tourette syndrome, which accounts for a lot of the profanity-laced outbursts, facial tics, spitting, and mood swings that colored the perception of his fellow Davidians and the public at large. We think it's unfair to ignore that fact, especially since pretty much every source out there does. But it also doesn't change our official editorial position that George Roden was a total unhinged asshole. At some point in 1979, George got tired of waiting for his mother to die. He declared himself the rightful leader of the church and called on all true believers to come with him to live on his late dad's land somewhere in Israel. To no one's surprise but his own, there weren't any takers, and the ranks of his faction were growing dangerously thin. George, as you might imagine, wasn't the kind of dude who lets things go. In a petulant fit of vengeance, he tried to sell some of the church land out from under Lois, so she sued him and scored a permanent court injunction, barring him from selling any church assets or ever holding the office of church president. George refused to take it lying down, so he packed up his toys and moved back to California. And that's when a lanky, long-haired stranger in dirty blue jeans and beat-up Chuck Taylors rolled up to the gates of Mount Carmel. Vernon Howell was born in Houston, Texas in 1959, the year of the Great Disappointment. His mother, Bonnie Sue Clark, was only 15 years old, and his father abandoned them during the pregnancy. She remarried a little too soon, and Vernon's new stepfather started beating him at the age of two. 
Bonnie Sue got a divorce as fast as she could and moved up to Dallas to start over, leaving Vernon behind in the care of his alcoholic grandparents until she was stable enough to care for him. He finally rejoined his mother and her new husband at the age of five, splitting his time between their home in the rural suburbs of North Dallas and the East Texas city of Tyler where his mom's company had an office. Vernon struggled with dyslexia and a stammer in his speech, and consequently with school in general. Back then, and especially here, schools didn't really have the resources or even the desire to accommodate kids with learning disabilities. Why bother addressing a student's individual needs when you can just dump them in special ed and forget about it? We can't stress enough how much of a problem this was at the time, and still is today. Kids were, and are, routinely left behind for the sake of convenience, and the psychological damage that can cause can't be overstated. And look, we're not experts and we're not here to preach. But sometimes it's hard not to wonder how different these stories we tell might have turned out if someone, somewhere, took a few moments to really listen to the troubled kid who just desperately needed someone, anyone, to care. But we digress. Vernon's teachers dismissed him as half-bright, and his classmates took to calling him Mr. Retardo. He was an awkward kid from a broken working-class home, traumatized, abused, and alienated by schoolyard bullies and authority figures alike. And from an early age, he internalized it. At some point, he had no choice but to assume they were right about him all along. He was stupid. He was a burden, a distraction, a sad statistic, and a lost cause. Everyone said so. How could he not believe it? The bullying and condescension would follow Vernon Howell from kindergarten to high school and, in a way, to his grave. No one wanted him around, so WWJD. In 11th grade, Vernon dropped out of Garland High School and resigned himself to whatever mercy God might have on someone whose very existence was someone else's embarrassing chore. While wandering around in an abandoned barn somewhere in Plano, Vernon found an old guitar beneath the hay and cobwebs, and something just clicked. He started learning some country songs before graduating to rock and roll, and before long he was forming garage bands with some of the other kids in town. But the rock scene was a cesspool of drugs and booze, and there just wasn't any room for Jesus between the rolled bills and razors of a dive bar green room. So Vernon Howell went solo. Now might be a good time to mention that Vernon was an extremely devout kid. Even his own mother was weirded out by how intensely he enjoyed going to church. He'd memorized entire books from the Bible by the age of 12, and by age 18, he could recite the whole thing, word for word, cover to cover, by heart. His obsessiveness went beyond scripture, though. There was also the girl. She was 16, he was 18, and not even his commitment to God could hold a candle to teenage hormones. It didn't take long for him to shamefully give in to carnal lust. Obviously, the situation wasn't jibing with his hardline beliefs, and he was horrified by his own impulses. There was just no other way to frame it. He couldn't trust himself not to sin. So he drove out to Tyler and stayed with a friend for two months in an effort to keep away from the temptation. One night, she called him up and told him she was pregnant. He paused for a moment, took a deep breath, and said a line he'd heard in some movie or something. I'm sterile. And she hung up. But a few weeks later, God spoke to him and told him he was as good as married to her in the eyes of the Lord, and he had to do right by that. He came back to Dallas, but by that point she'd already had an abortion. He was heartbroken, and she was all mixed up about it, but they started hanging out again anyway. One thing led to another, and she got pregnant again, but this time her dad ran him out of the house and out of her life for good. He spent weeks sleeping in his truck on the outskirts of Dallas until God spoke to him once again. 
He told Vernon it was time to stop dwelling and start serving. And all of a sudden, everything was like, bang, he said. It hits me all at once. Oh, what an ability to forget the reasons and purposes of life. But the keynote is this. God said he would give her to me later. He moved back to Tyler and joined the local Seventh-day Adventist church, his mother's faith. But at age 22, he told the preacher that God had given him permission to marry his 15-year-old daughter. And the preacher didn't take that so well. Vernon was more or less run out of town, so he hit the road, southbound. One afternoon in 1981, Vernon Howell found himself in Elk, Texas, just outside of Waco, and walking up to the gates of Mount Carmel. I was just a bonehead coming to see what was going on. And, bonehead or not, they embraced him as one of their own. Lois Roden took him in as a pupil and her personal driver, and within weeks he was leading Bible studies for a rapt audience. Whenever he came to the pulpit, often with a five o'clock shadow and motor oil stains on his shoes, he didn't sermonize, he conversated. And it was enthralling. There was just something about the guy. A few months later, Vernon started staying in Lois's room at night, which raised some eyebrows. Though he claimed they were just having private theological discussions, he later confessed to an affair in which he tried to impregnate her. Lois was long past menopause, but he believed in a miracle so hard she was willing to feign a miscarriage. A fair amount of the Davidians were more than a little creeped out by the 40-year age gap and the out-of-wedlock relations, but no one more so than George. George Roden hated Vernon Howell from the moment he laid eyes on him, and you can probably imagine how he took it when his mother started laying a lot more than eyes on that scrawny little creep, and the rest of the Davidians were starting to choose sides. So when the administration building burned down in 1983, destroying the printing press and causing a half a million dollars in damages, George immediately cast the blame on Vernon. And he wasn't the only one. Several eyewitnesses came forward claiming to have seen Vernon light the blaze, but the factions were so polarized, no one in Vernon's camp was willing to believe it. The following year, Vernon asked Lois to marry him. She agreed, and instead of exchanging rings, she put a $700 gold chain around his neck when they gave their vows. Later that night, according to George's wife, Amo, Vernon draped the same necklace around the neck of a 14-year-old girl named Rachel Jones, claiming her as his polygamous second wife. Lois allegedly snatched the chain off the girl's neck the next day, but neither left him, and everyone at Mount Carmel was more than a little uneasy about the whole thing. George moved back from California and announced an election for the church presidency. He won, and Vernon tried to push Lois to take it to court, citing the injunction. But she was more interested in traveling in her twilight years. Let the boys fight it out. George sued Vernon for raping his mother and lost. Meanwhile, Vernon's followers openly chided George and threatened to, quote, horsewhip him. So he started printing tracts that predicted Vernon's violent death, and before long, he was carrying a gun everywhere he went. He finally confronted Vernon in the spring of 1984. By that point, most Davidians were so weirded out by their leader's cradle robbing and potentially compromised position that they were able to hold their nose downwind of George. By the end of the day, Vernon and his followers were evicted from the compound at gunpoint. Vernon led his flock 90 miles east to Palestine, Texas, where they lived in a makeshift compound made of old buses, plywood shanties, and tents. They had no running water or electricity and used plastic buckets for toilets. At first, the locals thought they were just a bunch of dirty hippies. Gross and weird, sure, but harmless enough. But they wore out their welcome pretty fast. Vernon was sending the children out to collect water from the neighbor's spigots on a near daily basis, 
and the sheriff was getting complaints. He sent out a couple of deputies to check things out and pass along a friendly warning. Please don't be hassling the neighbors. Thanks and y'all have a good night, okay? But Vernon didn't take it so well. He marched down to the office with a church member posing as his attorney and demanded to speak with Sheriff Thomas immediately. But Thomas wasn't the backwoods rube Vernon thought he'd be. It took him all of two minutes to call out the fake lawyer and, in the process, learn just about all he needed to know about this Vernon Howell fella. So he sent two of his more amiable deputies out to the camp to get friendly with the group and keep an eye on things. Aside from a one-off run-in with Child Protective Services, the Davidians didn't seem to be up to anything dangerous or illegal. But Sheriff Thomas, and pretty much everyone else, didn't much like the stories they were hearing whispered around town. Something just didn't smell right. But what could they do? If there wasn't any law breaking, folks, especially white Christian folks, could do whatever they wanted on their own private property. It just ain't nobody else's business. Until it is. A manager at the local Walmart called up Sheriff Thomas to let him know the Davidians were buying up all the firearms he had in stock. Not that there was anything wrong with that, of course. It's their God-given right as Americans. But just thought you might want to know. Thomas checked in with the local gun store owner, and he too had been doing a hell of a business lately. He said those Davidian folks were in the market for automatic weapons, but they were willing to take whatever they could get their hands on. Sheriff Thomas was rightly concerned, but they weren't technically breaking any laws, so there wasn't anything he could do but wait and see. Meanwhile, at Mount Carmel, George was having some trouble earning respect as a leader. Turns out forcing people to call the place Rodenville wasn't as popular as he thought it'd be. He was still second in command to Lois, but she wasn't going to live forever, God willing. He needed to prove himself somehow, show the flock that he'd make a strong, capable president. So, for whatever reason, he decided it was a good idea to invite a local news camera crew out to the compound, ostensibly to tour the grounds and show the world that the Branch Davidians were lovely, productive, pious citizens just like everyone else. Naturally, he spent most of the interview waving around an M1 carbine and ranting to the TV audience about some guy they'd never heard of. It's basically a holy jihad, he said. Khomeini versus Israel, that's what Vernon Howell has with me. The spectacle didn't work out the way George had hoped, and in the preceding weeks, a good number of Davidians left in fear of what he might do, or make them do. He did eventually get one bit of good news, though. His mother Lois finally died but his ascension to the presidency was still up in the air. After all, his mom did legally bar him from the job, and worse, a lot of his supporters were siphoning away to that twerp Vernon Howell. He had to do something, and fast. In October 1987, George Roden finally came up with a surefire, totally well-thought-out plan to prove his superiority over his arch-rival once and for all. He snuck into the Davidian Cemetery late at night and dug up the grave of an 85-year-old woman named Anna Hughes, who'd been dead for 20 years. He dragged the coffin into the nearby chapel, draped it in a giant Israeli flag, and called up Vernon Howell with a challenge. Whichever man could resurrect the old lady's corpse with his prayers would become God's undisputed president of the Branch Davidians. Vernon was like, Yeah, no thanks, dude. Good luck with all that. George was pissed but he wasn't going to let that scrawny little mom fondler ruin his brilliant plan. So he spent the rest of the night praying over a putrefying skeleton, expecting it to spring to life any moment now. Spoiler alert, it didn't. Vernon, meanwhile, had a plan of his own. He called the sheriff's office on Halloween to report the abuse of a corpse. The cops thought it was a prank at first, and even then, 
It was going to be a busy night for them. But Vernon kept pushing, and they were losing patience. Look, Mr. Howell, we can't do anything without some real hard evidence. Snap some photos of the body or something, and then maybe we can talk. Y'all take care now. Happy halloween It wasn't the first or the last time someone would make the mistake of underestimating Vernon Howell. In the pre-dawn hours of November 3rd, 1987, Vernon and seven of his followers piled into a truck and drove out to Mount Carmel to get photos of Anna Hughes' earthly remains. Or that was the story, anyway. They were decked out in matching Kmart camo fatigues with black grease smeared under their eyes. And they'd brought along a few dozen assault rifles with 400 rounds of ammunition. And they kind of forgot to bring a camera, so there's that. The posse snuck through the gates and hid out on the grounds till mid-afternoon, when Vernon gave the signal. They swept through the compound, guns raised, quietly warning anyone they saw there might be trouble. You know, just FYI. We're not sure if George was tipped off or he was just hanging around his front yard with a fully loaded, technically legal in Texas, Uzi submachine gun. Both are honestly plausible. But either way, Vernon's boys threw themselves into a ditch and drew a bead on George while he took cover behind a tree. Okay, so we just gotta say real quick, we're just as well aware as y'all are that our acting skills are not great, but this is seriously how this conversation played out. Inflection and all, according to George's wife Amo anyway. She was cooking dinner in the kitchen a few yards away from George's hiding tree when shots rang out. She stuck her head out the front door and shouted, George, what the hell's going on out there? There's some men out here shooting at me. I'll call the sheriff. Well, wait a minute. George tried to return fire, but the Uzi's magazine jammed and burst, and he effectively shot himself in the chest with a scatter shot of metal shrapnel. Hey, George, should we call the sheriff? Yeah, call the sheriff. Amo hung up the phone and went right back to cooking because she knew, quote, when it was over, people'd be hungry. Yeah. Welcome to Texas. The gunfight went on for about half an hour before the deputy showed up and calmly broke it up like it was a low-key bar fight. Vernon and his men were taken downtown and George was taken to the hospital. None of the bullets fired actually hit anyone. A station wagon rolled up next to the squad cars and three more of Vernon's men got out. They walked over to Amo, smiling pleasantly, and introduced themselves by name. We've come to take the property over. But don't worry, you can still stay here. Get the hell off this property, she shouted, loud enough to catch the attention of one of the deputies. He looked over his shoulder and said, Hey lady, don't be making trouble. Just keep it down. She demanded the cops kick them out, but they basically just sauntered up to the men like they were on a noise complaint from some whiny neighbor. The cops whispered something, the men nodded, smiled politely, and everyone drove off. Have a nice day, ma'am. Y'all take care now. Back at the station, Sheriff Jack Harwell had to give Vernon the bad news. Well, charge has been filed against you, Mr. Howe. You and your boys gotta surrender. I want y'all to bring all the guns you was using in the gunfight. And they had a lot of them. According to one deputy, Vernon's boys had, quote, enough weapons and ammunition to hold off the entire McLennan County Sheriff's Department, the police department, and the local National Guard. Before the incident could go to trial, George was sentenced to six months in jail for contempt of court. During one of his petty, fruitless, and plentiful lawsuits, he'd apparently called the judge a, quote, goddamn tyrant, and attempted to curse him with herpes and AIDS. The next day, 30 of Vernon's followers came to seize control of Mount Carmel. They politely called ahead to say they had a court order, but we're not sure if that's true. Amo Roden certainly didn't think it was, but it didn't matter. By dawn, there were armed guards posted at the gates, controlling who came and went from the compound, all in the name 
of Vernon Howe. Vernon and the others were charged with attempted murder and it went to court five months later. Every day the judge and jurors walked into a courtroom packed wall to wall with Branch Davidians. On one side was the attractive and charismatic Vernon flanked by dozens of supporters. Happy families, cute kids, friends hugging, and just seemingly normal folks. On the other side was George Roden, a scowling, grizzled lowlife flanked by correctional officers from the McLennan County Jail. The defense didn't have much trouble selling the court on their narrative. George was a dangerous whack job who claimed he was the messiah and that he had the supernatural ability to inflict and cure AIDS at will. It didn't help when a Davidian witness testified that George routinely prayed to himself, quote, In the name of George B. Roden, amen. And of course, there was his less-than-stellar track record of laying sex curses on the judiciary. But George was the plaintiff in this case, the victim. So I guess there's something to be said for first impressions. The prosecution tried to make the case that it was an assassination attempt, citing the bullets lodged in the tree George used for cover. But they didn't have much else to go on. Vernon claimed they were there to take photos of corpse abuse, and they'd only brought the guns as a precaution, given George's obviously unstable mental state. He claimed George shot first, and though he did discharge his weapon in self-defense, he was just aiming at a tree. He'd never actually try to hurt Mr. Roden. The other seven men insisted they were just firing into the air the whole time, and a stray bullet here and there may or may not have hit the tree six inches from George's face. It's not exactly a strong defense, but the prosecution had a hard time fighting back. As defense attorney Gary Coker put it, Roden was just such a bad actor. He was bad news. And that apparently mattered a lot, because at one point, the defense actually dragged the coffin of Anna Hughes into the courthouse to admit his evidence. Vernon even had them tie a pink bow around the skeleton's neck to make it presentable for trial. The judge obviously denied the motion, so they left the casket and the rotting corpse inside it in the public courthouse rotunda until they could figure out how the hell they were going to proceed. Finally, a team of eight men, six of them defendants on trial for attempted murder, were allowed to hoist up a 500-pound casket that had no handles and carry it down the courthouse steps to the street, throw it in the back of a van, and presumably return it to wherever it came from. A few of the sources we dug up, no pun intended, so intended. <laughs> Even claimed the coffin slipped their grip and tumbled down the stairs. When the verdict came down two weeks later, the seven followers were found not guilty, but the jury was deadlocked on Vernon. The judge declared a mistrial, and several of the jurors literally rushed over to the defense table to give Vernon a hug. There was definitely something about the guy. As they wrapped things up, Vernon invited the jury and prosecutors out to Mount Carmel for ice cream and none of the jurors who were interviewed about it later would either confirm or deny that they went, but they totally did. Vernon arranged for the Branch Davidians to repay all 20 years worth of back taxes on the property, around 60 grand, and the sheriff returned their stockpile of weapons and ammo. Without a felony conviction, they had no right to seizure. Besides, as far as the sheriff was concerned, they weren't hurting nobody. The prosecution declined to pursue further charges, but one of them, El Hadid J. Shabazz, did later say that he, quote, was a black man trying to prosecute seven white men in a southern town called Waco. The day after the trial, Vernon's followers moved to Mount Carmel for good, and those who were already there united behind him. George, for his part, decided to put the past behind him. Sort of. After getting out of prison, he moved to Odessa, Texas, and promptly bludgeoned his roommate to death with an axe handle, and then shot him for good measure. George claimed the man had been sent to kill him by Vernon Howell. 
The jury found him not guilty of murder by reason of insanity, but he couldn't escape his nemesis. It felt like no matter where he went, Vernon still found a way to haunt him. After the trial, George was shipped off to a state hospital in a small North Texas town called Vernon. Under Vernon's leadership, the Branch Davidians became fairly well-known and well-liked around Waco. Most of them had jobs in town. Some ran businesses, including a respected law office, and a few worked the gun show circuit down in Austin. Vernon was a staple at local music venues and often took some of the men downtown after Bible study to, quote, kick back, swallow some suds, and play some tunes. And they probably needed a drink, given that Vernon's Bible study sessions tended to run long, like up to 18 hours long. But as one Davidian put it, it was never a bore. Vernon didn't preach so much as talk. He liked to float ideas and theories and interpretations, and he loved a good debate. His conversation over pontification approach made him relatable and approachable, like a teacher you could have a beer with. It was a welcome change for some Seventh-day Adventists, and Christians in general, who were getting a little tired of the same stale thing week after week. Vernon made faith kind of fun and almost cool as much as it can be anyway. And for his followers, that made his more unorthodox teachings just a little easier to swallow. He told them he was the lamb that was written about in the book of Revelation, the only one who could, and would, open the seven seals. He wasn't claiming to be Jesus. After all, Jesus was a good Christ, a holy Christ. Vernon Howell was, in his own words, a sinful Messiah. Only a sinner, anointed by God, could do what a holy Christ couldn't, sparked the flames at the end of creation. But he decided to start small. The SDA church had extremely strict rules regarding diet, and they flat out forbade alcohol, tobacco, and drugs, even caffeine. With Vernon in charge, beef and chicken were back on the compound's menu, even though most folks chose to stick with abstinence. One woman, who was willing to give it a shot, puked her guts out as soon as the charred flesh hit her tongue. The repeal of prohibition at the compound went pretty much the same way. Only Vernon and the other guys in the band really cared for the taste of beer. He even found a way to justify his new affinity for Marlboro Lights. Psalm 18.8, quote, Smoke rose from his nostrils. It was only the first line of the verse, taken wildly out of context, but it worked. And since he knew practically all of the Bible's 31,000 some odd verses by heart, he could justify damn near anything. It was like his mutant ability. But the Bible isn't all cheeseburgers and Marlboros. As he put it, quote, The Bible is a whole book about nothing but killing. In August 1989, Vernon released a new cassette of his teachings, his favorite medium for both song and scripture. And this one was titled The New Light. God had spoken to him once again, and this time he told him, or commanded him, to procreate with all the women and girls in the church. It was the only way to restore the house of David and raise a proper army of God for the end of days. The Lord told him he had to separate all married couples living on the compound and segregate the sexes in their sleeping quarters. The men and boys were to remain celibate. He and only he could have sex with their wives and daughters. And he could do so whenever and however he chose. And the men had no right to protest, but they were welcome to watch. As the Texas Observer noted, quote, God, not legislatures, established the age of consent. The residents of Mount Carmel, like thousands of Old Testament Hebrews, believe that once a person is a bona fide mouthpiece for God, he may break the law as God instructs. And somehow, despite whatever doubts, reservations, feelings, or impulses they might have had, nearly all of the Branch Davidians went along with it. 
Those who refused left the compound, and some the church altogether, and a few went to the authorities. There were accusations of statutory rape, molestation, and abuse of misbehaving children, even infantilizing abuse of misbehaving adults. But the police and child protective services couldn't find any conclusive evidence to back up the claims, even after multiple visits and investigations. Still, Vernon likely fathered as many as 20 children by mothers as young as 14. The word of God was law, and Vernon Howell, conveniently enough, was the only one who could hear it. He even managed to take his message abroad, recruiting followers in church chapters in Canada, Australia, and the UK, not to mention Hawaii and all over the continental US. But Israel was an especially important target for recruitment. He traveled there several times over the years, convinced it would be ground zero for Victor Hotef's long-prophesized siege at the end of the world. But an ex-member tipped off the authorities and Vernon was formally kicked out of the country. But it was all good, just a mix-up in translation. Armageddon wasn't going to happen on a hill they called a mountain somewhere in Megiddo, Israel. It was going to happen on a hill they called a mountain in Waco, Texas. In 1990, the compound had grown to a community of around 150 believers, and Vernon decided to change his name to better reflect his destiny, or as he justified it at the time, for publicity and business purposes. He chose a name that combined the legacy of King David, the spiritual bloodline of which he claimed to be Sion, and the Hebrew name for Cyrus the Great, the Persian king, heathen and sinner, who delivered the Jews from bondage in Babylon, David Koresh. In the latter half of 1991, Larry Gilbreth had become something of a regular at the compound. Mount Carmel was part of his route as a UPS driver, and the Branch Davidians seemed to be getting more and more mail every day. They were quirky, friendly folks, and by that point, he was on a first-name basis with most of them. The guards waved him through the gate with a smile, and their preacher, Mr. Koresh, usually signed for the packages himself. He even chatted up Larry about their shared passion for motorcycles or mechanics and whatnot. The Davidians were a little strange, but to each their own. They were always nice, almost to a fault, and whatever else they had going on, well, that was between them and God. Besides, it's the 90s. People can be a little funky if they feel like it. And who was he to judge? But around New Year's 1992, things at the compound started to change. There were people wearing camouflage and patrolling the grounds. They started having Larry delivered to a small office at the edge of the property that they called the Mag Bag where the guard had to call up Koresh for the go-ahead before Larry could even drive up to the compound. The boxes were getting bigger, heavier, and often listed as COD, cash on delivery, which meant Larry'd end up finishing out his route with upwards of five grand stashed somewhere in his truck. His routes could take him anywhere from 200 to 400 miles away, with 100 stops in between, and it was scary to have that kind of cash on him. He always made a point to call his wife Deborah just in case. If anything happened to him, at least she'd know where he'd been. But stranger still, the labels on the boxes weren't the usual personal items he was used to delivering there or anywhere else. They were coming from arms dealers, lots of them. He didn't think much of it at first. After all, it was none of his business. Buying tons of mail order weapons and having them delivered to your door wasn't illegal in Texas. But it was concerning. On one such delivery, they didn't have the cash on hand for the COD. He said, no worries, he'd just swing back by tomorrow with the package. But hours later, and miles away, a Branch Davidian flagged him down with an envelope full of cash for the box. Larry was understandably freaked out, not just because he'd have to make another call to Deborah and let her know he was carting around a life-endangering amount of money again, but because... 
They found me. I said to myself, how do they know how I run my route? Well, that, that concerned me a little. In February 1992, he climbed into the back of his truck to grab Mr. Koresh's daily haul. One of the boxes broke open at the bottom, and a half dozen hand grenade casings clattered onto the floor around his feet. He carefully stuffed them back in the box, taped it shut, and made the delivery. David Koresh met him at the gate with a smile and thanked him by name. The beat-up state of the box didn't seem to bother him at all. When Larry got home, he told Deborah what happened, and they had a hard time sleeping that night. He genuinely liked these people. He didn't want to get them in trouble if they weren't doing anything wrong. But grenades? The next day, Deborah decided to bite the bullet and call the sheriff. She didn't feel like she had a choice. What if they hurt someone or themselves? The sheriff, in turn, called the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. The ATF immediately launched an investigation, and for the next year, Larry Gilbreth went about his routine like normal, and David Koresh met him at the gate with a smile and thanked him by name every time. By January of 1993, the ATF had rented out a house across the street from the compound and conducted surveillance on the Branch Davidians 24-7. They even insisted on sending an undercover agent along with Larry on his routes. But he had long hair. He didn't fit the dress code. Larry tried to warn the agents, but they ignored him. When the two of them pulled up to the mag bag, Larry was surprised they even let him in. David Koresh, just like always, smiled, thanked him, and whispered, Larry, we know they're watching us. They drove off with that incident, but Larry was shaken bad, and the ATF scrapped the undercover operation. Well, uh, that one at least. Larry went back to doing his routes like he always did, like he always had for the past 30 years until the last week of February, when again everything changed. The top brass at the ATF authorized their agents to take action, to confiscate any illegal weapons, get the dozens of children living in the compound safely into state custody, and arrest David Koresh. An 80-vehicle convoy, more than a mile long, embarked from their base at Fort Hood, up I-35 toward Waco. It was a lot, and there was a very important, very cynical reason for that. The ATF's director, Stephen Higgins, was suffering some bad publicity for recently surfaced allegations of institutional sexual harassment and racial discrimination, among other controversial misconduct, not to mention a decades-long history of screw-ups and high-profile calls for the agency's abolition. The ATF was on its last legs, and they needed to prove themselves, but their upcoming budget hearing wasn't the only thing on their minds. They wanted to be a household name a prestigious, respectable agency like the FBI, but enforcing the Contraband Cigarette Act just wasn't all that sexy. They needed something with a little more pizzazz, something big. They could have arrested Koresh quickly, easily, and quietly on one of his daily excursions into town, but instead they saw this situation as an opportunity for PR gold. They filmed everything documentary style. The preparation, the convoy, all of it hoping they'd end up with something heroic, dramatic, and entertaining that they could cut into an infomercial for the agency. Something along the lines of the popular TV show, Cops. They were desperate and overconfident. In the last 10 years, they'd only lost one agent in the line of duty, to an accidental explosion of confiscated fireworks. The preparations for the raid, under Higgins' direction, were more like a Hollywood pre-production than a law enforcement operation. They had news conferences planned out, called ahead to TV outlets, strategically posted camera crews throughout the area, and told ambulances and hospitals to be ready for the big event. 
The higher-ups called it Operation Trojan Horse, but the agents on the ground called it Showtime. Everything was in place and they were set to serve a search warrant by force on February 28, 1993. They sent in Special Agent Robert Rodriguez, who'd been undercover at the compound for weeks, posing as a recent convert named Robert Gonzalez. They wanted him to reevaluate the situation inside and make sure everything was going as planned. So he went upstairs to talk to Koresh. The ATF and National Guard are coming, Koresh said, turning away and walking over to a window overlooking the grounds. Robert, it's up to you now. He turned and looked at Robert, who was doing his best to hide his surprise and his fear. He knows. What do you mean? He asked. Robert, you know what I mean. We know they're coming. He didn't know what to do. He was supposed to be out of there and behind ATF lines. The raid was set to begin at 9.15, and it was already a few minutes after 9. If Koresh didn't kill him where he stood, his fellow agents firing blindly into the compound might do the job for him. Instead, David Koresh shook his hand. Good luck, Robert, he said. As confusing and disturbing as it was in the moment, Robert could tell he meant it. His right-hand man, Steve Schneider, walked Robert politely to the front door. The FBI would later ask Schneider why they didn't confront Robert if they knew he was an agent all along. He told them, quote, We love the guy. I mean, we spent enough time with him where we really do appreciate the man's character and personality. Steve opened the front door, and Robert made a run for it, worried they might shoot him in the back. They didn't. When he got to the undercover house, he called up his superior on the phone. Did you see any weapons? No. Was there a call to arms? No. What were they doing when you left? Praying. He hung up, jumped in his pickup, and floored it to the command center. Maybe there was still time to convince his superiors to just call the whole thing off. Maybe there was still a chance this could all end peacefully and nobody would have to get hurt. I was upset because I knew what was going to happen, he said. But when he got to the command center, it was abandoned. It was showtime, and he was too late to save them. February 28th, 1993, 9.45 a.m. Two pickup trucks rolled up to the compound towing cattle trailers covered in canvas tarps and loaded with ATF agents. Everything's clear. Windows are clear. Truck one and two. Full speed ahead. Full speed ahead. But it wasn't clear. It's showtime. 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 To this day, we still don't know for sure who fired the first shot. Outside, 35 agents in full SWAT gear fanned out across the property. It was supposed to be a surprise attack, but somehow the Davidians knew they were coming. Whatever plans they had were shredded to ribbons in a rain of bullets. Their cop show fantasy PR stunt had suddenly collapsed into a full-on war zone. But the cameras kept rolling, covering every angle live and nationwide as federal agents were cut down and bleeding out in the green-yellow grass. Inside the compound, windows and walls were exploding into shrapnel, shards, and splinters as the riflemen ducked and fired and ducked again and screamed and bled. Women and children huddled for cover as the walls disintegrated around them, the morning sun lighting up the dark through a hundred bullet holes, five hundred, a thousand, until walls became windows and there was nowhere left to hide. Parents scrambling to find their kids and get them to safety, stumbling over debris through plumes of smoke, eyes burning, struggling to breathe, struggling to think in the chaos, confusion, and cacophony of noise. The nonstop barrage of machine gun fire coming in and going out from all directions, everywhere. Flashbang grenades clattering through a sea of broken glass and spent shells, the deafening blast, the blinding lights, the children screaming, everyone screaming. 
Most of them never even heard the distorted mechanical voice from outside. The ATF will cease fire if they will cease fire and won't pull back. And suddenly, it was quiet. The only sounds were the cries of the children, the moans of the wounded, and the painful, piercing ring in their ears. Koresh had been shot in the wrist and the side, and he was bleeding bad. He dragged himself to a phone and called his mother. She didn't pick up, so he left a message on her answering machine. Hello, Mama. It's your boy. They shot me, and I'm dying, alright? But I'll be back real soon, okay? I'm sorry you didn't learn the seals, but I'll be merciful, okay? I'll, I'll see y'all in the skies. His prognosis turned out to be a little premature. The women treated the wounds and stemmed the bleeding. He was going to make it, but he was one of the lucky ones. Four agents and six Davidians were dead. 32 people were wounded. It was the bloodiest gunfight in the history of the ATF, and both sides now found themselves confronted with the same burning question. Now what? Within hours of the firefight, orders came down from above, and the ATF reluctantly stepped aside so the FBI could clean up their mess. But their hands and reputations weren't exactly clean either. The agency was still reeling from the debacle in Ruby Ridge, Idaho, where a showdown with a family of white supremacists ended badly for both sides. And a lot of people felt like the FBI had blood on its hands. But it was bigger than just the one agency. Distrust of the federal government as a whole was a near majority opinion among Americans at the time. They thought it was overreaching its authority and engaging in unnecessary, even unconstitutional force. The FBI had to handle the situation delicately, do it right this time, because if things went south, well, the Branch Davidians weren't the only pissed off people in the country who had a whole lot of guns and nothing to lose. Four days into the standoff, David Koresh agreed to surrender peacefully on one condition. They had to publicly broadcast an hour-long audio recording he'd made during the raid. The agents passed the tape on to a Dallas radio station, and they actually played it. But Koresh didn't hold up his end of the bargain. He told the negotiators, My God told me to wait. And no one came out. The negotiators were understandably miffed that he'd reneged on them, but some of them apparently learned more from Ruby Ridge than others. And eventually cooler heads prevailed. The agents sent in a video camera so Koresh could record the situation inside and give them a better idea of what they were dealing with. Instead, he addressed the camera directly, surrounded by his family. You come pointing guns in the direction of my wives and my kids, damn it. I'm gonna meet you at the door every time. And for folks all over the country, it was hard not to empathize. Before long, people were making road trips all the way out to Central Texas. Some to show their support for the Branch Davidians, but most just looking to send a message to the federal government that they just weren't gonna take it anymore. Twelve days into the standoff, President Clinton's pick for Attorney General was confirmed by the Senate in a vote of 98 to 0. She was a prominent state attorney from Florida, Janet Reno. At that point, the ATF was just trying to make themselves useful by working security. They set up roadblocks, barricades, and checkpoints where armed ATF agents checked credentials and kept an eye on the growing crowds. Protesters, onlookers, and journalists were gathering around the perimeter. It was a sea of anti-government protest signs and a historically confused mishmash of flags. American, Texan, Confederate, Gadsden, and our most famous contribution to vexillology, come and take it. An SMU student named Michelle Rauch drove down to Waco for spring break, probably making her the first and only person to ever do so voluntarily. Sorry, Waco. 
Go Bears. <laughs> she was a journalism major who wanted to cover the siege for the school newspaper, the Daily Campus. She, quote, knew there was another angle to the story, and she wanted to find out what it was. As she approached the ATF barricades, she spotted a tall, lanky guy, 24 years old, shaved head, camo hat, red flannel shirt tucked in his jeans. He was sitting on the hood of his beat-up Chevy sedan, selling the same bumper stickers we still see every day on our commutes to our day jobs. Things like, when guns are outlawed, I will become an outlaw, which might as well be our state motto. The guy had driven all the way from New York to show his support and defiance at the standoff. Michelle asked him why, and he told her pretty much the same thing anyone there would have. He was opposed to how they handled the initial raid and thought the local sheriff should have just gone down there and issued an arrest warrant. But it wasn't just this one incident, or even Ruby Ridge. It was bigger than that. It was an ideology of grievance. One that most folks at the time considered fringe and extreme, but now, 25 years later, is just daily discourse on social media and cable news. The government is afraid of the guns people have because they have to have control of the people at all times. Once you take away the guns, you can do anything to people. You give them an inch and they'll take a mile. I believe we're slowly turning into a socialist government and the people need to prepare to defend themselves against government control. She thanked the man and asked him his name. Tim McVeigh, he told her. He left Waco two days later. For all their caution, the FBI just didn't seem to fully understand what they were dealing with. To them, it was cut and dry. Koresh was a sociopath and his followers were just hostages. The agents kept telling him just to let people leave, but he didn't understand. After all, they could leave anytime they wanted. The negotiators even tried to trade items like milk in exchange for released kids, but again, they weren't hostages. And to the Davidians, it seemed callous and insane. One member said, quote, Are you gonna bargain with human lives? It didn't help that the FBI was so dismissive, if not outright hostile, toward the Davidians' religious beliefs, especially their so-called messiah. Agents were quoted as calling him a self-centered liar, a coward, phony, child molester, con man, a delusional, egotistical fanatic, and cheap thug who interprets the Bible through the barrel of a gun. And on a few of those points, they weren't wrong, but that's beside the point. The Branch Davidians heard a lot of what was said, and they weren't exactly stoked to be working with a bunch of condescending religious bigots. But still, they wanted to keep the heat off, so Koresh started sending out some of the children, 21 in total, who were scooped up by agents and taken to a nearby church. But their parents stayed behind, and there were still two dozen kids left inside. By then, there were 12 tanks, 668 agents, 15 army personnel, 13 Texas National Guard, 31 Texas Rangers, 131 officers from the Department of Public Safety, 17 from the Sheriff's Office, and 18 local police, all surrounding Mount Carmel. It was the largest military force ever gathered against a civilian suspect in American history. The negotiators were still quibbling over tactics, but they all agreed on one thing. They couldn't let this become another Ruby Ridge or Jonestown or something as unimaginable as it was, even worse. We need to get this resolved now. People are hurting in there. We need to get this done. So they made the call to cut electricity to the compound and set up massive PA systems around the property that would blare music and sound effects 24-7 to disrupt their sleep and annoy them into surrender. They played tapes of Tibetan monks chanting, Christmas carol sing-alongs, reveille, telephone rings, the screams of rabbits being killed, and warped versions of popular songs, like Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Were Made For Walking. The New York Times jokingly referred to it as Siege Rock, 
and the FBI announced to the press that Achy Breaky Heart was considered but ultimately rejected. And everyone had a good laugh. Except, of course, the sleep-deprived and terrified children living in a televised war zone. If all that sounds kind of familiar, it might be because the government used a similar tactic back in 2003 on prisoners of war in Abu Ghraib. After weeks of negotiation talks, 60 hours with David Koresh alone, the FBI decided the situation was, quote, non-negotiable, and all options were on the table. James Tabor and Philip Arnold, biblical scholars from Baylor University and SMU, came to the compound to offer their help to the feds. They understood the Davidians in a way the agents never could, and they were deeply concerned that if the FBI didn't change their approach, things were going to end badly. They said the Davidians believed they were living through the fifth seal in the book of Revelation, a prophecy foretelling a round of bloodshed preceded by, quote, a little season before the believers would suffer through yet another. That's why the Davidians wouldn't come out. They were waiting for the next seal to open, the final judgment of God. Tabor and Arnold worked fast, recording a tape that presented a different interpretation of the scriptures, one that didn't have to end in violence and death. And Koresh was into it. He was clearly relieved to finally be talking with someone who spoke his language. He responded with a request for time to write down his interpretations of the seven seals, and quote, Upon completion of this task, I'll come out and then you can do your thing with this beast. Inside the compound, people were rejoicing. They might actually get the happy ending they were praying for. But the FBI was skeptical and impatient. They kept badgering Koresh for a timeline. A day? Two? What? Tabor and Arnold asked them to give Koresh two weeks. They gave him three days. They told the attorney general there were children being abused and assaulted inside the compound, and she needed to take action immediately. And if we learned anything from the satanic panic era, it's that Janet Reno didn't take those kinds of allegations lightly. On April 19, 1993, she authorized a full-scale assault on the Branch Davidian compound. Agents called them at 6 a.m. to warn them to take cover. Whoever picked up the phone didn't say anything. They just ripped the cord out of the wall and threw the phone out the front door. Five minutes later, tanks were ramming the walls of the compound with their guns, literally tearing the structure apart as concrete came crumbling down inside. 400 canisters of CS gas were thrown through the gaping holes into enclosed spaces with plywood walls and floors littered with debris from the gunfight. And since the FBI had cut the electricity, Nearly every room was full of lit candles and lanterns. This is not an assault. The gas you smell and will continue to detect is non-lethal tear gas. You are under arrest. The standoff is over. Families took cover beneath the pews in the chapel, huddled together, and prayed. David, you had your 15 minutes of fame. Around noon, the TV cameras spotted a fire in part of the building. Koresh is finished. He's no longer the Messiah. Within 20 minutes, the entire compound was engulfed in flames. Both the FBI and the ATF deny responsibility for the fire. They'd bugged the compound and picked up chatter indicating the Davidians were intentionally pouring fuel and starting fires. There were confessions and eyewitness testimony corroborating their account, but we don't feel qualified to get too deep into the woods on this, so we'll just say there's some controversy about it. And we always encourage y'all to look things up for yourselves, no matter what. Two trucks from the Waco Fire Department arrived at the compound to contain the fire, but they were held up at the ATF checkpoint for 17 minutes. A Davidian woman came running out of the building and surrendered to the police. 
She was carrying a floppy disk with a single word processor file on it. The Manuscript of the Seven Seals by David Koresh. Only minutes later, massive explosions tore through the compound. Several ex-members of the church were watching while their husbands, wives, daughters, sons, friends, and Messiah died on live TV. We were all watching. We can see the flames from two miles away. Now the flames, oh my goodness. The, the question is, what about the people inside? What about the children? Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols were watching at a farm in Michigan where Terry's brother, James, was teaching them how to make explosives from household chemicals. Tim came running out saying, they're burning Waco, burning it, and nobody's coming out. James later said, we could see it was deliberate. As they watched the compound collapse into the flames, they knew they had to take action. They had to go all in. Larry and Deborah Gilbreth were watching. He stood up and screamed at the TV. Why aren't they coming out? And as the towering inferno collapsed beneath the billowing black smoke, their grief and horror was eclipsed only by the crippling pangs of guilt. Did they do the right thing? If only they, if they hadn't, he knew these people. They were friends. It didn't have to end this way. The Gilberts did their first and only press interview for CBS News in 2017, and they said they harbor no ill will toward anyone, not the ATF, the FBI, the Davidians, the media, anyone, except in some small way, themselves. Anybody can tell you it's not your fault, Deborah said, but in the back of your mind, you still have that little doubt, and it's always going to be there. On April the 19th, I was devastated, Larry said, visibly choking back tears. When people see the names, you can go on the internet, you, you can look at the names of the people that died at, at the compound. They're just names. I see faces. In less than an hour, nothing remained of Mount Carmel but a smoldering ruin. Just like Victor Hotef prophesied almost 60 years before. Just like Elijah's altar. The supremacy of his God, live in color for all to see. 76 Branch Davidians died that day suffocated, shot, or buried alive in debris. Koresh had been shot in the head, possibly by his own second-in-command, Steve Schneider, in a sort of assisted suicide or consensual execution. However it went down, Vernon Howe, David Koresh, the sinful messiah, was only 33 years old when he died, just like Jesus. There were five major investigations, finding fault on all sides. Eleven Davidians were tried for conspiracy to murder ATF agents. Nine were convicted on lesser charges, none of which were arson. A handful of survivors still believe Koresh will come back and that they'll be reunited one day in God's grace. It's easy to make fun, but then we'd fall into the same trap the media did back then. They're still waiting for their kids to come back safe, to come home. As late as 2001, a mother who lost her children in the siege said, some days I thank God that there's a floor to wash, dishes to do, a lawn to mow, anything to keep me busy, because the waiting is hard. It's heartbreaking. The ATF director, Higgins, was fired from his post when it was discovered that he and others in the leadership knew in advance that the Davidians were aware of the coming siege and were prepared for it. But he didn't warn the agents on the ground. Many of the agents involved later expressed regrets and entertained their own what-if scenarios for a better outcome. Janet Reno, for her part, publicly expressed her regret for the decision to storm the compound and accepted full responsibility for the loss of life. 
We definitely don't have time to get into all the legal and political scandals and ramifications. It's already taken six months to make this episode, after all. Seriously, the research took forever because so many typically reliable sources were just lazy and dismissive about anything beyond or before the televised deaths. And even then, it was hard to sort out the facts from the bias. Some major outlets even referred to Crush as Mr. Retardo, just like the schoolyard bullies from his youth. The media narrative at the time was a bizarre exercise in cognitive dissonance. The people in the compound were portrayed as both the helpless victims of a madman and a deranged cult of maniacs who deserved what they got. The day after the raid, the President of the United States told reporters, quote, I don't think the United States government is responsible for the fact that a bunch of religious fanatics decided to kill themselves. By casting him as the spiritual successors of Manson, Jones, or imaginary daycare Satanists, it dehumanized them, making the bloodshed easier for the public to digest and dismiss. And by writing off the Davidians' sincerely held religious beliefs as delusional brainwashing, the government, media, and the public at large were able to rationalize it all as a well-intentioned rescue effort gone awry. After all, the followers had to be irrational victims who couldn't think for themselves. How else could they believe such nonsense? They had to be trapped, had to be held hostage, and someone had to save them. But in their own minds and hearts, the Davidians were already saved. There were a lot of things wrong with the Branch Davidians, especially Koresh. We want to be clear about that. But when it comes to history, you can't fully grasp the horror without the humanity. And there's more than one side to every story. As Vox put it, quote, the designation of cult is more often an aesthetic value judgment, a religious group that seems weird. In a sense, God is in the eye of the beholder. The Branch Davidians came to Texas to live within the gray area between the laws of man and God, between rational concern and nobody's business. And as we watched like voyeurs while they died on live TV, all of us had at least one foot in the gray. When the smoldering ashes of Mount Carmel had finally gone cold, the perception of so-called cults shifted once again towards sympathy. If the story of Waco was written in our collective cognitive dissonance, its aftermath was penned in hypocrisy. The cause of religious liberty and the fear that it's being taken away has been a hot topic since Waco, especially with demographic trends pushing the moral majority into the minority for the first time. The same people who spent decades fear-mongering about so-called cults and scoffing at the beliefs of groups like the Branch Davidians soon found themselves on the other side of the table. In law enforcement, often religious folks themselves started treading lightly. In a lot of ways, it was a good thing. But it's here in the gray area where groups like the FLDS Church were able to engage in horrific acts of sexual assault and child trafficking at their compound in El Dorado, Texas for years in the early 2000s, before anyone took serious action. It made it possible for a group like Heritage Homestead to cover up the sex crimes of their members as a discreet church matter and still be listed on the Waco Tourism website as a fun attraction for the whole family. Not to mention the Church of Wells getting off scot-free for the negligent death of an infant. And that's just the few we have time to mention. Like they say, everything's bigger here in Texas. Big hair, big trucks, big business, and big personalities. Whether it's David Koresh or Joel Osteen. When there's just something missing, Texas is a hell of a place to find it. 
of faith these days can be just as secular as it is spiritual. For years following the siege at Mount Carmel, Janet Reno, Chuck Schumer, and other prominent politicians were inundated with thousands of faxes, comparing them to Hitler, wishing Hitler had killed them, and just generally threatening to murder them and their families. In 1995, an Amtrak train was intentionally derailed, and a note left at the scene claimed it was vengeance for Waco. On April 19, 1995, two years to the day that the compound burned, Timothy McVeigh rented a moving truck and packed it with 5,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate and nitromethane. He parked it in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, just as the doors were opening at 9 a.m., and lit a two-minute fuse. The explosion obliterated the entire north half of the building, killing 168 people, including 19 children in a daycare center on the second floor. 684 others were injured and nearly 300 buildings were damaged in the blast. McVeigh was arrested and indicted four months later with a fake driver's license that listed his birthday as April 19th. He claimed the bombing was a, quote, justifiable response for the crimes of the U.S. government in Waco, and he believed he was in imminent danger from the state. In his mind, it was self-defense, and more importantly, an act of patriotism. After all, what right did the government have to condemn him to death for crimes they themselves had committed? He was executed by lethal injection on June 11, 2001, and though a judge ultimately denied the request, McVeigh asked to have his death televised on live TV. Maybe someone out there watching might decide, like he did, that it was time to take action. Nothing remains of the compound today but concrete foundations and a deeply felt legacy. There are at least 17 known and active militia groups in Texas, one of which erected a granite headstone-shaped monument at the site, reading, For 51 days, the Davidians stood proudly. One militia leader was quoted in the New York Times only a few years ago, saying, Waco can happen at any given time, but the outcome will be different this time. Of that, I can assure you. This is Texas. We scattered Kennedy's brains across Elm Street, and six years later, fulfilled his dream of landing a man on the moon. And we'd use that same duality and those very same events to found a new religious movement for a new era, the Church of Conspiracism. The enemy was still among us, but they weren't deranged hippies or religious fanatics and crazy cults, or even clandestine communists. Well. They were the government spooks and death squads willing to slaughter our children over our faith and our guns. The witches were burning witches, and those witches had to burn. Waco became both a rallying cry for right-wing extremists and Exhibit A for conspiracy theorists. The same delusions Janet Reno helped spread across the country during the satanic panic came back on her full circle. She stoked their fears for a decade and ironically made them real. The siege of Waco became the spiritual nexus of a kind of bizarre intersectionality, one that inextricably links the cause of anti-government militants, conspiracy theorists, white supremacists, and hardline religious zealots, in a shared delusion of persecution, projection, and paranoia. And over time, this coalition of the fringe wormed its way into traditional faith and mainstream politics. When we were living down in Austin, everybody in town knew about Alex Jones. He was a local eccentric that spewed nonsense so silly and bizarre it just seemed like harmless fun. A decade and a half later, he's informing public policy and getting accolades from the President of the United States. 
Even our relatively mainstream governor gives voice and traction to conspiracist beliefs. From Jade Helm to vaccines to imaginary bathroom predators. It's a faith in which the government is inherently incompetent, corrupt, and hell-bent on stripping us of our liberties. And one in which the leader of that very same government deserves nothing less than our unquestioning fealty. A faith that advocates the stockpiling of weapons to overthrow the tyrannical state. And one in which the military of that very same state are unequivocally heroes. It's a faith in which a plurality of those same soldiers are the sons and daughters of the very Texans arming themselves against them. A faith in which the battle flag of an enemy nation flies in reverence beside the flag of the nation they fought to destroy. Where calls to secede from the Union are a point of pride, and the Pledge of Allegiance to that very same Union is a sacred and mandatory ritual for children as young as five. A faith in which our own home county's GOP holds high the banner of religious freedom, and yet, just a few months ago, held a vote to remove their own party's chairman simply because of his religion. It's a faith in which all authorities, experts, and truth-tellers are clearly lying. Only a sheep would believe them. And freethinkers know that the real truth can only be found at the bottom of a wishing well. The members of the new religious movement of conspiracism deeply empathize with the people who died in Waco and rightly decry their unjust fate. But at the same time, deep down, wish they'd been the ones holding the guns. It's a secular religion of self-contradiction, projected insecurities, oversimplification, desperate rationalizations, excuses, double standards, double think, disinformation masquerading as esoteric knowledge, weakness masquerading as strength, gullibility masquerading as skepticism. It's a witch on a witch hunt, conjuring dark magics to drag his enemies to the stake. And when the condemned spits and screams the truth in his face, he's sincere in his self-delusion. When he says, a witch? <laughs> I know you are, but what am I? and the swarming, chanting crowd behind him, all of them, someone who just couldn't shake the feeling that something was missing, will cheer him on as he sparks the match, because they know in their hearts that they're only a stumble, a misspoken word, a question, a thought, a truthful, objective acknowledgement away from the stake themselves. They have no choice but to go all in. After all, it's better to watch than burn. The media narrative sounds all too familiar, and like we said in the first half of this journey, in Texas, history echoes. And if it teaches us anything, it's that the blind faith in any human leader never ends well. In a world of cognitive dissonance and hypocrisy, savior executioners and victimized monsters, we're gonna have a hard time coping with the humanity in the horrors yet to come. As Vernon Howell once said, we wanna go from here to a place of freedom where we're no longer in bondage to the flesh, our stupidity, our good looks. We want to get away from the guy in the mirror, don't we? In 1992, Marshall Herf Applewhite moved his flock out to Laguna Hills, California, where they launched a media blitz. They paid to have 12 home videos broadcast via satellite, published page-long ads in national newspapers, and started using the newfangled technology of the World Wide Web to spread the word far and wide. But nobody seemed to be listening. Herf had taken to calling his message, their message, a final offer, but soon rebranded it as a last chance. Two years later, he sold all the group's possessions except the vans and laptops and made a last-ditch effort to tour the country and save the world from its imminent destruction. 
The congregants of Heaven's Gate traveled for nine months, but their ranks never grew beyond 45. Everywhere they went, they were met with heckling, ridicule, and derision, but no one tried to kill them. And for Herf, that was failure. The beast never came. In August, he told his followers, It may be necessary to take things into our own hands. Herf did the math, and based on the warp time he predicted for the next level, the 24 years he'd spent preaching, including those 11 wonderful years with Bonnie Nettles, were a mere 31 minutes on the other side. All this pain, grief, loss, and darkness was nothing but a momentary blip in the universal existence. It was nothing, and everything else there was, everything that mattered, waited for them somewhere beyond. Somewhere out there, Bonnie was just counting the time-warped minutes until he'd be back by her side, forever and always, together. But the crew was having trouble parsing the message from the aliens. What were they supposed to do? Were they supposed to provoke a government attack? Like those poor souls in Waco? They'd bought rifles and handguns as a last-ditch contingency, but they weren't comfortable with them, and they kept them locked up in storage. Armed insurrection just wasn't their thing. But there was another way. Herf called a meeting to discuss suicide. He'd read up on it on the web, and there were cocktails out there that could make it painless. He asked his followers if they were opposed to the idea of shedding their earthly vehicles by their own hand. A few said they were. A few more said they had some reservations, but they'd keep their options open. I was just checking. It's just something to think about. But then something big happened. It was July 1995, and astronomers announced the discovery of the Hale-Bopp Comet, a colossal chunk of space rock careening towards Earth, and though it was set to fly right by without any danger to the planet, it was the kind of celestial event that only happened once every two centuries. Some members of Heaven's Gate happened to be listening to the radio at the time, a syndicated late-night show called Coast to Coast with Art Bell. Now, we're in our mid-30s, and almost everyone our age is bound to have fond memories of listening to the show as kids late at night. Bell was a conspiracy theorist, but in the more classical sense. People from all over the country would call in with stories about aliens, werewolves, or government plots to hide the existence of ghosts. It was fun and silly, and as far as conspiracy radio goes, Art Bell was like the Miller Lite to Alex Jones's Strychnine. He sadly passed away last year, and with him died that goofy fun Area 51 vampire ghost cabal that Conspiracy Radio had once so beautifully and innocuously been. Rest in otherworldly peace, Mr. Bell. But anyway. That night in 1995, some guy called into the show to talk about a photo he'd taken of the comet where a shadowy object the size of a planet was clearly visible in the bright streak of the comet's tail. A spaceship. What else could it be? Bell was convinced, of course, and he posted the photo on his website. Sure, the UFO wasn't visible in any of the other dozen photos the caller had taken that night, and literally no one else saw any such shadowy behemoth in Hale-Bopp's toe. But, you know, the reptilian deep state works in mysterious ways. The Heaven's Gate members were freaking out. They took the news to Herf, and he confirmed their suspicions. This was it. They were finally going home. In October 1996, they took out alien abduction insurance policies from a company that also claimed to offer policies for, quote, virgins against immaculate conception, prostitutes against loss of earnings from headache or backache, conversion to a werewolf or vampire, death or serious injury through paranormal activity, and unfaithful husbands against having their penises cut off. 
Needless to say, the company never paid out. They rented a gorgeous mansion in a gated community out in Rancho Santa Fe, paying the bills with their home-based computer consulting business, just counting the minutes till the comets fly by and their eternal salvation. They took a group trip to Vegas, rode the roller coasters, gambled away their useless human currency, and just took a moment to appreciate the fleeting, frivolous beauty of life on Earth. They met people they otherwise never would have met. They hiked through nature and encountered animals they otherwise never would have seen in person. And they were truly and completely happy in a way most of us likely never know. They all sat down and recorded videos, kind of like reality show confessionals. Not about their escapades in Sin City, but something so much more important. Their farewells. You can still watch some of the videos online, and if you didn't know what was about to happen, you'd see nothing but smiles and laughter and excitement. It's impossible to deny that whatever it was they were searching for to fill that deep, dark void within them, they'd found it. Between March 24th and 26th, 1997, as the Hale-Bopp comet came as close to Earth as it was ever going to come, Herf and 38 members of Heaven's Gate put on matching black Nikes, handmade black uniforms, sweatpants, and custom armbands embroidered with a loving homage to Star Trek. Heaven's Gate away team. They went and choreographed waves. Each of them in turn ate a cup of pudding or applesauce laced with phenobarbital, chased it down with a shot of vodka, and laid down to ascend, their hands clasped around a $5 bill, three quarters, and their passport. No one knows for sure the reason why they chose those items, but there's one theory we're personally partial to. A line from Mark Twain's 1907 short story, Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven, in which Twain writes, The fare to get to heaven on the tail of a comet was $5.75. Members assisted those who ascended before them, gently placing a plastic bag over their head and lovingly draping them in a purple shroud, Bonnie's favorite color. In his own farewell video, Marshall Herf Applewhite offered humanity one last chance to save themselves. Once the away team had ascended, there'd be a brief window of time in which stragglers could still hitch a ride. All they had to do was call out the names T and Doe, Bonnie and Herf, and the spaceship would just pick them up and take them away. It wasn't guaranteed though. Some places had better signals than others. And by his calculations, no place on Earth had a stronger connection to the world beyond than Texas. And on that, Mr. Applewhite, we couldn't agree more. Written and produced by us, Ryan Sheffield and Brad Dewar. Recorded here in beautiful Denton, Texas. Home of the Mean Green. It's kind of like Austin if it had never moved out of its parents' house. <laughs> you know what I mean? Our theme music in this episode's outro song are by Whiskey Folk Ramblers, whose singer, Tyler, has an awesome new band called Crooked Bones. Check them out. Additional music by Less Than One and available at freemusicarchive.org. See you soon. Much sooner this time, we promise. Thanks for listening, y'all. Come on back to me.